Welcome back to QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you again by Room Now Live 2023. Meetings that matter, meetings that change thinking, meetings that are meaningful. Be there. Today's case, a 35-year-old male comes to you saying he just got out of the hospital three weeks ago. What's his story? He said before that, six weeks before that, he was developing shortness of breath. It was getting progressively worse and it was accompanied with chest pain. The chest pain was worse with deep breaths, was worse with coughing. Two weeks prior to admission to the hospital, he had a fever of 102. He went to his family doc, they did a chest x-ray, it was negative. He was given a Medrol dose pack, really didn't get any better, and several days later, he was hospitalized. On admission to the hospital, they diagnosed pericarditis. It was evident. He had a serositis-like pain, worse with cough, worse with position. He had evidence of an enlarged heart. He had echo evidence of an effusion. He did not have EKG changes. So while he was admitted, his fever went to 104. He had body aches. He actually had several episodes of hypotension, was sent to the ICU. There he underwent pericardiocentesis. They removed a half liter of exudative fluid. Serologies on the fluid were negative. The man's labs were, other than a mild ANA of 180, um, the only thing that was abnormal was his acute phase reactance. His white count was not really elevated. He wasn't anemic, but his CRP was 32 milligrams per liter and set rate was 99. He's got a family history of lupus in his mother, so who knows what his ANA means. Uh, again, in the hospital, they did the drainage. They tried treating him with colchicine, non-steroidals, and steroids. Initially high, discharged on 30 or 40 milligrams, still with chest pain intermittently, still with an effusion on the last echo. He says the pain comes with laying down or bending over. He has a history of mitral valve surgery about five years ago, eczema, back pain, and he said he had pleuritis treated one year ago with a few weeks of steroids. The question is, what is this? Could this recurrent Pericarditis Is this recurrent pericarditis with fever? Could this be due to lupus? Other than the ANA of 1 to 80, there's no other evidence of lupus. What would your workup be? You might order a bunch of serologies. They would prove to be negative. You might do a PPD on him. You might uh, or, not, or get a quantifiron on him. You would send his fluid and his blood cultures for culture for uh, AFB uh, and also for fungal cultures. All that came back negative. So the diagnosis here is idiopathic recurrent pericarditis, the autoinflammatory syndrome that is almost defined as a condition that is unresponsive to nonsteroidals, colchicine, and steroids. Turns out that pericarditis is a common um, complication of acute pericarditis. So it's estimated that patients who have acute idiopathic pericarditis, up to 30% of them may have future recurrent pericarditis and maybe those are the ones who have this auto-inflammatory syndrome. Uh, re- this idiopathic auto-inflammatory recurrent pericarditis, that's a mouthful, 
um, is uh, thought to be IL-1 mediated, uh, involves the inflammasome. The white count's usually high. They may have a lymphopenia, but they usually have very high acute phase reactants, and they are usually seronegative. The differential diagnosis of pericarditis presenting like this is pretty wide. A lot of autoimmune conditions, including lupus, MCTD, myositis patients, GPA, EGPA, RA, IgG4-related disease, FMF, TRAPS, CAPS, STILS, uh, systemic JA, sarcoid, Kawasaki's, GCA, and Takayasu's, and of course, the big one, infection. Um, could this be a paraneoplastic presentation? Probably not, right, with this kind of presentation. The new thing this year is that an IL-1 inhibitor has become FDA-approved for patients like this. The literature is replete with many reports of patients failing those other therapies that you would normally use and responding really well to either anakinra, kanakinumab, or rolonisept. This year, based on the Rhapsody trial, it was a uh, trial of rolonisept, uh, a randomized withdrawal style trial in 86 patients with recurrent pericarditis showing clearly a significant benefit. So these patients' rheumatologists may be called in to see. I think the cardiologists usually make the diagnosis and may be asking the rheumatologist for help. Think about it. Recurrent pericarditis brought to you by Room Now Live, March 18 and 19. You can register at roomnow.live. We'll see you there. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, March 18 and 19. It's all about the discussion and the interchange. It's more than our great faculty. It's what you have to say. We need experts like you at roomnow.live. Today's case, a young woman who presents with pain in her hands, her neck. She has rainouts and anemia. So she's 29. She comes in to see me with two months of pain all over. She says she has arthralgias that affect her arms, hands, fingers, legs, uh, even her feet and her neck. Two months ago, she went to the emergency room with the same complaints, was diagnosed with arthritis and pancytopenia. <laughs> Yet she was given Toradol and a shot of IM, Stalumetrol, and sent on her merry way. Since then, she's taken over-the-counter ibuprofen. However, that causes really severe gastritis, and now she can no longer stand it. When I see her, she has those complaints. She doesn't really complain of stiffness, although she says it's, it's hard to use her hands at her job. She has one-hour morning stiffness. She has biphasic rainouts, no weakness, no hair loss, no history of miscarriages. She does have back pain and fatigue. Um, she says that she's her hair is thinning. She has a rash, sometimes on her hands, sometimes on her face, but she doesn't have any rash today. On the exam, when we see her, she has dusky fingers, livido in the arms, 14 tender joints, no swollen joints, 12 out of 18 tender points. The ANA is 1 to 1280. That was done in the emergency room. She didn't have a pancytopenia. She actually had an anemia that was mild and a white count of 9.7, <coughs> excuse me, H&H with 10 over 32, and her platelets were 194. She'd have a lymphopenia of 600. The rest of her labs were normal. So she was given tizanidine and Tylenol. We order further labs, and she comes back to the clinic a month later. She's clearly worse. She's not getting any better. 
Her pain is now an eight. She hurts all day long. She says she's having a hard time combing her hair and getting going upstairs. She's achy and the same joints hurt. Now she's having a fever up to 100 or 101, night sweats. She says when she wakes up in the morning, there's hair on the pillow. She still has the rain outs, but she's lost five pounds of weight. When you look at her, uh-oh, she has a malar rash, meaning she has sparing of the nasolabial fold bilaterally. She has a little bit of a rash on her chin and on her forehead. When you examine her joints, she's got plenty of swollen joints. Now all those PIPs that were tender before are really swollen. So she now has 22 tender, 8 swollen. She has other joints that are tender. When you look at her labs, she's still anemic. She doesn't have a leukopenia. She does have a lymphopenia, but her double-stranded DNA is 6190, 6,190 units. Platelets have dropped to 114 C3 and C4 are very low. She has 3-plus proteinuria, and the UA has plenty of RBCs, 10 to 20 per high-powered field. Clearly, the woman has lupus. This is a new diagnosis of lupus. I presented this at the recent RWCS conference, and I asked my panel of experts, how would you manage this, this gal? Half the panel said they wanted a kidney biopsy. Well, this particular patient didn't have any insurance, and so that made a kidney biopsy difficult. And I asked them, could they manage this case without a kidney biopsy? And they said, yes, reluctantly so. How would they treat them? They all agreed on steroids, probably starting at a dose of either 40 or 60 milligrams a day. They all agreed on hydroxychloroquine, full dose, maximum per her weight. They were split on which other agent they would use at this point. More or less uh, 40% wanted, 50% wanted mycophenolate, knowing she doesn't have any insurance and mycophenolate still is, still is kind of expensive. About 40% wanted uh, azathioprine, two to three milligrams per kilogram. And about 10% wanted belimumab, saying, hey, if she's has no insurance and uh, has no income, you can probably get compassionate use belimumab for free. Well, she was treated with everything I just mentioned except for mycophenolate and azathioprine, meaning she got 40 milligrams of steroids, she got hydroxychloroquine, 400 milligrams, and she got 150 of azathioprine. She came back a month later, significantly better, no swollen joints, only three tender joints. She had no edema. Um, she had no edema before. She still has no edema. Her malar rash was still there but faint, but she was now functional. So she's going to be seen in another month from now. Uh, again, acute lupus is her dominant problem, uh, and aggressive management is the, is the prescription she really needs. Uh, I would love to have a renal biopsy in her. Um, I told her if she's not responding dramatically at the eight-week mark, which would be the next visit she comes back, uh, we would consider maybe transferring her uh, to the county hospital or transferring her to a local clinical trial that would use more aggressive therapy. That's it for this episode of QD Clinic. We'll see you at roomnow.live. You can register for our meeting March 18 and 19. Take care. This is QD Clinic and I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Shorter lectures, more discussion, more of you be there. Today's case is Molly's in trouble. 
Molly's a 57-year-old gal who has rheumatoid arthritis for about three or four years. She's doing, doing very well on what you've prescribed, which is uh, leflunamide, 20 a day, abatacept given weekly subcutaneously, and she PRN takes meloxicam if she feels stiff or she's going to do more. When she was last seen about six or eight weeks ago, her C-dye was four. She calls in saying that for the last four days, she's gotten worse. She now has swelling and pain in her knuckles in her left hand. That would be MCPs 234. She sends a picture in, looks kind of full, not really rare. She did have a similar kind of flare a few months ago, and that was treated with a few days of steroids. She's seropositive RA for a few years. She also has depression and osteopenia. So what's your treatment preference? What are you dealing with? This is clear-cut RA. Could it be something else? Could this be infection? Unlikely. She's had a flare like this before. Could this be drug-induced lupus presenting in an RA patient? Well, that would have to be on a TNF inhibitor, right? It doesn't, otherwise, you don't get drug-induced lupus in patients with RA. Um, what about just a simple, plain old flare? That seems to be the preferred diagnosis here. Your treatment options are many, yet... Most of you play the steroid poker game. That's a title from Marty Cavanaugh. He did a blog on Room Now saying, when confronted with you know, these urgent situations, we play steroid poker. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? Is my regimen better than yours? What trumps what? Because we're never all the same. Our steroid management of flares is kind of like an art that we invented you know, while driving home one day. So... You could give a Medrol dose pack. That would be um, starting at 24 milligrams a day, going down to 4 milligrams a day over six days. You can give prednisone 10. Some would give 15. A few would give 20 for five to 10 days. You might do an intraarticular steroid injection if it was a joint that you could easily inject. I would do that in large joints. I wouldn't do it in MCPs 2 and 3. Would you instead use things like immobilization, rest and ice, in the good old days, hospitalization and bed rest was a common treatment for RA flares, and you know what? It works. It lowers acute phase reactants. It makes swelling go away. Would you manage this with <coughs> excuse me, non-steroidals or other analgesics? Most people wouldn't, unless you were going to be on bed rest. You know, waiting it out doesn't seem like an, a reasonable advantage. That patient's not likely to come back to you. My point is that flares happen frequently, yet our management of flares is a little bit of a game and, and a little bit of, a, of an own unknown. I mean, flares happen when you're tapering DMARDs or biologics. Flares happen with pregnancy, with surgery, when they're off therapy. They can happen like this patient from either who knows what or a stressful event or an intercurrent illness. And if you're managing this by phone, who knows if this is fibromyalgia or flare. Now, telemedicine, pictures that are good pictures or a face-to-face -face visit would answer that question. But you do need to know that flares are not innocuous. Flares don't have a guideline. They're not in the 2022 ULAR guidelines, here they're not. There's no uh, provisions for them in the ACR 2021 guidelines. The facts are that most RA patients are going to flare. Even RA patients in remission, 30% will flare. There are studies that show that most flares will last 
a week or less in 60% of patients and more than two weeks in 30% of patients. The problem is during flares without calling you over a third of patients and maybe a half of patients will change their medicine without your advice. There are a number of studies that show that those who have flares and repeated flares are at greater risk for cardiovascular events. They're at greater risk for radiographic progression. And, you know, all the rheumatologists say, well, not if it's a two or three day flare. You know, if it's a two, day, three, two to three day flare, you don't really need to use steroids, do you? Well, then, yes, we do, and yes, we don't. My point is, I'd like to minimize the steroids. I'd like to maximize the rest. Um, and yet, I'm looking for another regimen. One is not in play. So, who's going to do the study that shows alternative ways to manage flares? Maybe you manage it with short-acting anakinra or short-acting JAK inhibitor or... You know, most biologics, most DMARDs won't act fast enough to appease the patient. That's why rest, ice, and something that manages pain, the problem is most patients want to keep going. So how do you manage flares? Maybe you should do this study. Think about it. That's it for this episode of QD Clinic. This is QD Clinic. I am Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. March 18 and 19 in Dallas, Texas, or virtual from home. Great meetings like this are attended by great rheumatologists like you. Today's case is, what are your options with VTE? 64-year-old female with seropositive RA presents with shortness of breath, chest pain going on for two days. She's highly seropositive, taking methotrexate 20 a week, tofacitinib 11 a day, prednisone 10 a day, aspirin 81 a day. She's on an Alupent inhaler. She's admitted to the hospital from the emergency room because she has acute shortness of breath and ankle edema. She's got a low PO2 and felt to be at high risk for pulmonary embolism. On spiral CT, she does have an embolus uh, and you have to treat her. Now again, what are her other medical problems? Hypertension, obesity, she's multiparous, she's had five babies, lost one to a spontaneous uh, a, a miscarriage, no prior history of MICHF, CVA, DVT, or PE. She's had a lot of DMAR treatment in the past, multiple TNF inhibitors, uh, leflunomide, hydroxychloroquine. When she's admitted, she has five uh, tender joints, four swollen joints, she has rheumatoid nodules, and she has some edema about the ankle. The question is, is she having a pulmonary embolism? She is. And why is she having it? Is she having it because she's overweight? Is she having it because she's multiparous? Is she having it because she has RA? Is she having it because she's active RA? Is she having it because she's on steroids or because she's on the JAK inhibitor? I think you need to know the numbers to understand the risk. Clearly, she's going to get treated, and she's going to get anticoagulated and then sent home on anticoagulation for three to six months. This is her first episode. The population risk, those people who are running around outside on, in, in the mall or wherever, their risk of developing a VTE, venous thromboembolic event, either, either a DVT or a PE, is about one to two VTEs per 1,000 patient years. An RA patient is about a three to four 
per 1,000 patient years. An RA patient with disease activity, because inflammation substantially increases risk, could be like four to seven per 1,000 patient years. An RA patient on a JAK inhibitor, usually with active disease enough to get on a JAK inhibitor, has a rate of about five to eight per 1,000 patient years. So despite all this craziness, especially from the oral surveillance study, the actual increase afforded by the JAK inhibitor is about one or two more cases per 1,000 patient years over and above RA. So RA is the bad player, activity is the bad player, and topocytinib, baricitinib, hepatocytinib are contributory elements that you may have to manage. So how do you manage all this? Well, if you have an RA patient who has got a prior history of a VTE, you probably shouldn't start them on a JAK. You've got other options, do you not? And there are other risk factors that would contribute to the risk of VTE. Age and obesity are big ones, right? Uh, uh, prior, and then uh, the other one being prior VTE events is you're more likely to get it again. That's why you would want to avoid the JAK inhibitor, which might increase the risk. If someone has is on a JAK inhibitor and doing well um, and has not had yet a VTE and you're worried about the oral surveillance data, do you stop the the JAK inhibitor, I wouldn't. I'd have the discussion with the patient, find out if they've ever had a VTE, and if they're ultimately, you know, severely worried about it because they're someone in their family died of a pulmonary embolism and they don't want to be that person. You have other options that you would have to consider switching to. Uh, again, you have to assess VTE risk in your RA patients as you uh, give them therapy. Uh, interestingly, the, this risk of VTE uh, has not been necessarily ascribed to the hematologic drugs like ruxolotinib and other ones, um, but they are now mentioned in the new JAK inhibitors are approved for eczema or atopic dermatitis. So this is something that you're going to have to deal with. Uh, and again, what I would do in a patient like this is I probably would stop the JAK inhibitor because um, she's going to have to stop because she's in the hospital anyway. I continue with her other medicines. I put her on anticoagulation. As soon as she's home, I would put her on another um, another DMARD, another biologic. Again, what are your options? They're really contingent upon the therapy she took. She's taken methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, leflunomide, etanercept, and adalimumab. You haven't done IL-6 inhibitors, IL-1 inhibitors. Uh, abatacept or rituximab in this patient. Uh, and I think that she now, because of her RA, her active RA, and her prior history of a VTE event, and she's also overweight, she's at risk for future VTEs to try to minimize it with drugs that are not known to give you that association. Hope you managed it in a similar manner. We'll see you at Room Now Live, either online or in Dallas, March 18 and 19. Take care.